I'm Tass Mellis of The Starters. This is Ben Golver with the Open Floor Podcast. Hi, I'm Kristen Ludlow from NBA Inside Stuff. I'm OG Ananobi of the Toronto Raptors. Hey, I'm Elena Donon, and welcome to the Double Clutch. Double Clutch. Double Clutch. Double Clutch. Double Clutch Podcast. Hello there, guys. Welcome to the latest edition of the Double Clutch Podcast. I'm Joe Holbert, one of your usual hosts and lead writers, and I'm joined once again by resident Australian and resident Phoenix Suns fan, David Nash. How is it going, David? I'm doing well, Joe. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I've I've really enjoyed um, these second round series, which is what we're going to get into today. It's good to have you back. I remember a year ago, I believe you had just started podcasting um, with your greatly named Seven Seconds or Less podcast. Talk about how that's kind of gone for you <laughs> this year. Yeah, it's gone pretty well, Joe. The the on-court stuff hasn't been great for us, but uh, starting a podcast, they've given us plenty to talk about throughout the year. I think it was just our last episode where I was mentioning to my co-host Max that there's never a dull week uh, as a Suns podcast or as a Suns fan, obviously with the Suns just f- firing and then hiring a new coach all within about 15 days of each other. So um, yeah, it's been good. I think we're about 45 or so episodes deep now and the listenership has has had a steady increase across that and we're still enjoying doing it so it's been fun yeah ultimately that's what podcasting's about isn't it it's about it's about enjoying doing it and obviously i imagine was was there a gap in the market for a phoenix suns podcast there wasn't funnily enough there's oh, a, right. there's quite a few going on um, and even a couple that have, have started around the same time as we did um, and uh, a couple since as well. But, you know, we, Max and I, we, we were discussing it in my co-host. Max lives in Phoenix. I live in Australia and uh, we just really enjoyed talking to each other about the Suns and decided to start something up and do something, I guess, what we felt was a little bit different. We like to think in, in terms of maybe a gap in the market for the Suns pod that we do. We, we try and talk a little bit of general NBA as well, which we're going to um, do on, on this podcast today obviously so i always have a, a keen eye on the rest of the league as well and um yeah we cover kind of all all sorts of topics and um yeah the listeners have come along with us for the ride which has been fun yeah it's it's good that you uh focus on all nba because that is our that is our plan today so we're going to start um first sort of 15 20 minutes we're going to talk about the two playoff series um the milwaukee bucks against the celtics and the rockets against the warriors I'm not discussing the other mm-hmm. two because we're recording on tuesday and it would all date very quickly by the time this goes out and we could look very very stupid very quickly if we fire out some hot takes that get <laughs> disproven um within hours of this being published um and then at the end obviously because david is a phoenix suns guy we're going to talk about the phoenix suns the the coaching change they they recently made and what the future holds with their general manager James Jones. Mm-hmm. So we'll go straight into Bucks Celtics. The Bucks beat the Celtics in Boston by twelve last night. There were boos at the end for the Boston Celtics, who in I mean the first half it was very even, but then the Celtics did what they've done whenever they've really lost a game this year. No ball movement, a lot of individual play, a lot of bad decision making. And Al Horford basically trying to hold all these different personalities, all these players that don't really mesh together. I mean, what have you made of this series generally, David? It's been a pretty crazy swing, Joe. It's 
seems like an eternity ago that Boston won that first game in Milwaukee and it was kind of panic stations there for a little bit where everyone kind of thought, oh, you know, oh, here we go. Um, the, the wheels have finally fallen off Milwaukee and they're too dependent on their star in Giannis. But uh, ever since, you know, he's taken over and, and the team's kind of come along for the ride as well. Last night's game in particular was really interesting because kind of look at the box score most of his uh you know guys that usually help him along the likes of Middleton uh Lopez all shot pretty poorly Miritich as well they were all kind of horrible from from deep and from around the floor as well and um I think the the Celtics had him in foul trouble there for quite a while as well so there was a, a crazy swing where uh Milwaukee's bench essentially uh grew the lead um, instead of, you know, when you were watching, you were probably just thinking they needed to hang on for four or five more minutes so they could get the starters back in with enough time left. But, um, you know, George Hill has been huge in this series, um, probably better than any guard on the Celtics. And that was kind of the story of last night's game and probably the story of the series really is, uh, as you said, that there's not much meshing going on with the Celtics, whereas everyone's stepping up for the Bucks. Yeah, so, I mean, when they put the... I mean, I, I watched the game in four and I watched it live. Um, and you, you know when you're watching a game and you know it's been quite bad shooting, but you don't realise till they put the stats up? Yeah. They were both shooting, I think, 22% from beyond the arc when they put the graphics up about three quarters of the way through the final quarter. And it was amazing to me to see how both teams responded. And for me, the way the two teams responded says a lot about kind of how we view this teams, why one was the one seed and one was the um, four seed. Because Milwaukee, when those shots weren't falling, they were they started cutting to the basket a lot more. They were um, getting guard post-ups and working off that Boston. Just continued to jack up these terrible shots. Marcus Smart won for seven Terry Rozier, oh my God, I've got to be careful when I talk about him because I'm just not, I'm not a fan of him at all. It was just a painful game, and Al Horford played relatively well. But when you look at this roster, David, I mean, on paper, it's it's very, very good. But do you think they've maybe got a problem with too many guys who who are at their best, kind of? being these one-on-one isolation players because I'm, I'm looking at a team like Philadelphia Philadelphia they do have all these guys but they've also got JJ Reddick who's constantly moving off the ball and he will I mean out of nothing JJ Reddick will just come to the baseline shoot a ridiculous jumper that would never go in for anyone else but I don't think Boston have anyone like that you can lean on off the ball yeah, it's a great point. I love how you keep referencing Al Horford trying to hold them all together because that's definitely what he's been trying to do. Um, you know, Kyrie's obviously been wildly inefficient the last couple of games and he's going to be the one that's taking the majority of the shots and, and down the stretch for the Celtics. And he just hasn't been hitting much at the moment. Um, and the team, as you say, it just doesn't mesh together. There's a lot of isolation players on the team. You know, Marcus Morris, I'm pretty familiar with from his son's days. Um, Jason Tatum's really struggled. I think he's only hit one three for the entire series or maybe even dating back to the previous series as well. Um, as you say, Al's been really good, played 38 minutes last night. Maybe you, you need to start to lean on him a little bit more. Um, but yeah, I mean, you look at that starting lineup, Tatum, Morris, Horford, Irving, Brown. There's a not, not a lot of off-ball movement there, as you as you mentioned. And then they don't have a lot to go with off the bench as well when, you know, Marcus Smart, obviously 15 minutes coming back from injury. Hopefully, we'll be better for that run. 
Uh, Rosie is just not someone they've been able to count on all year. And that's really the point for me is, you know, there's not many teams that can have a year like Boston did and then just turn it on in the playoffs. I think, you know, on our podcast with Max, we've been talking about Philly maybe being a, a rare team who's been able to do that on occasions. But, you know, they have even struggled against Toronto in the last two games. So it's it's really interesting that they're not clicking, they're not meshing. And uh, you wonder what that means for, I guess, this playoff series and then what it means for the offseason with, you know, the, the Anthony Davis stuff and, um, you know, maybe just needing to make a move to to change this team around. Yeah, there's going to be change because obviously Kyrie looks pretty much out there and I think he's playing his way out of there. Um, I wouldn't be surprised, actually. Someone on my timeline tweeted that, you know, will he get booed when he returns to Boston next year with um, whoever it will be, New York Clippers maybe uh maybe someone like the nets but uh, someone replied to it saying who's to say he doesn't get booed um in their neck in the next boston game um <laughs> you know if it does go to a game 6 it's um it's been a it's been a weird series but i've noticed a um sort of strategic thing the bucks are doing so we spoke there about the lack of off ball players i think the bucks mm-hmm. have exploited that because when kyrie or Rosier or Smart, whoever's handling the ball, whenever they go to the basket, the Bucks all series have given up the pick and pop attempt. Now, when I watch yep. it live, I kind of think, uh, Al, I mean, Al Hall three of eight last night. That's pretty good for a for a big man in this league, especially a guy who you know who isn't a number one offensive option. But I think yep. by letting um, Boston do that, they are basically exploiting the lack of off-ball motion in the sets and the lack of off-ball motion from these players because the only way the Celtics have really generated threes at times this year is by someone closing out on Al Horford, him pump faking, someone else coming across to help and then kicking it to the corner. Um, I think by allowing him that pick-and-pop attempt, I think you are taking away the Celtics' perimeter game because last night they did not create a lot of open looks. Yeah, it's an interesting point. You know, you've definitely looked at it a little bit deeper than I have. I'm not that familiar, I guess, with the Celtics. You know, in season sets and things. But you know, when when Al Horford's taking eight threes and that's half of his field goal attempts for the game, you kind of, as you say, it's playing into your hands a little bit as a defense. As you said, Marcus Smart one for seven as well. So even just looking at the box score, if you weren't watching the game, uh, your point is valid. You you would kind of say that you, the Bucks have essentially given the Celtics the shots that they want them to take and and minimize the effectiveness of guys like Kyrie. Um, you know, Jalen Brown, as you said, is probably the one in that starting lineup that can get moving off the ball and, and cut. But, you know, Al is used to playing in those high motion offenses. And if you're kind of leaving him on an island there, um, I think it was Zach Lowe and Stan Van Gundy the other day who who were talking about on a podcast around, you know, you kind of don't mind Al Horford shooting those shots uh, on an island because he's already kind of second guessing himself because he's not that used to it, as you said, particularly not at that kind of volume, Joe. Yeah, I mean, he's, you know, in Atlanta, I think the thing with the, what the value Al Horford brings is the spacing. But I think the Bucks, they are living with that spacing. They're not letting it worry them. They're making sure that they mark, they basically mark the other foot, the other four guys because there's just not a lot of movement. Um, we'll we'll yep. go on to, to Kyrie Irving now because this has been very, very interesting to watch throughout the playoffs because 
he he's had a really good season. I think there's a little bit of revisionism going on. As there always is an NBA Twitter, as you know. Um, but the last yep. three games are combined 19 for 62 from the field, 4 for 20 beyond the arc. I mean, there's a couple of people cynical people but smart people that i follow have this theory that this is what a kyrie irving led team will look like we spoke about the lack of off-ball motion um we spoke about the bad decision making but do you think it's harsh to blame the the decision making of guys like smart tatum branch i think it's harsh to blame that on kyrie I think it is a little harsh. Yeah, I, I'm a Kyrie fan. I'm, I'm certainly no apologist, and he's he's had a pretty shocking playoff series. And if this is how he leaves Boston, it would kind of leave a, a sour taste in everyone's mouth. But you know, above everything else, he's shooting under forty percent on the whole you know playoffs so far, which is obviously not ideal for Kyrie Irving, and, and only thirty three percent from three on on six and a half attempts a game. So, you know, but to I guess make at least some excuses for him. You, you look again at that starting lineup. He's got Marcus Morris, Jason Tatum, and Jalen Brown in the starting lineup. So I wouldn't even say this is a Kyrie Irving led offense or certainly not an ideal one that you'd look to build around Kyrie. If you committed all the way, I think Boston's problem from the outset this season, and it's kind of um, materializing in the playoffs is they haven't really created an optimal starting five around Kyrie Irving, whether that's been due to injuries or these kind of moving parts and pieces that they've got. But yeah, I think it is a little unfair to say that this is how uh, a Kyrie Irving offense maxes out because I just don't think the pieces around him in that starting five in particular are what you would pick if you were looking into an ideal situation of building around Kyrie. So that'll be interesting from free agency standpoint and, and the team that does eventually land him, how they look to to build better around him and, and I guess whether there's a second star because, you know, I guess for the other side of the coin uh, where he has done well, people will say he's always had LeBron James with him, which is a pretty good offsider to have next to you. Yeah, I, I agree with you on, on the team building. I mean, he's been linked with the Brooklyn Nets a lot in free agency and I think that mm-hmm. kind of set up is what I would build around him. You've got a great role man in Jarrett Allen. You've got a guy who gets extra possessions in Ed Davis, but you've got the shooters. You've got that off-ball motion. And you look at what D'Angelo, because, I mean, again, as you've probably seen on Twitter, I'm a bit of a D'Angelo Russell denier. I think he's I think he's okay. I think he's a bit of a one-trick pony. You put Kyrie Irving in that offense, I think it elevates him, and I think it elevates that team as well. Boston's Boston, I think, responded to to LeBron James actually being in the conference by loading up on big physical players who can match up to him. Guys like Tate and Brown and Morris, they can all, there's no such thing as LeBron stopper, but I look back at game one of this series, the problem that Butts had was they couldn't create any mismatches against that trio because they can all defend those one through four positions pretty well. They're all physical and they were disrupting Janice. They were disrupting Bledsoe, who I don't think had a great series by the way. Um, Mm-hmm. Do you kind of think the Celtics maybe need to lean because Morris is potentially going as well? I think he's going to get a nice free agency deal somewhere. I know you're. I mean, our resident Suns fan, uh, Ross McLeod, is, is a S- Scotsman diehard Suns fan. He's not a big fan of the Morris twins. I I'm a big fan of Marcus, not so much a fan of his brother. Um, I think Marcus will go and get a nice little contract somewhere as a piece. But I just kind of think they've already got players like him on this team. 
yeah, both the Morris brothers kind of left the desert in tumultuous fashion. So uh, maybe I, I, being a little harsh on Marcus, he was kind of shipped out uh, in the hope that we were going to land LaMarcus Aldridge and and then had some, I guess, negative comments to say about the team after the fact. But yeah, you won't find too many Suns fans that are a fan of the Morris twins. But, you know, they're 29 years old, so they're right in that little pocket of hopefully getting one last good deal. Uh, Markeith, as you said, will probably get the bum end of the stick there and Marcus should hopefully be able to pick up a decent deal for himself somewhere else out of Boston. But this is kind of the story with Marcus Morris. It happened in Phoenix. It happened uh, in Detroit after that. Um, He is very streaky. Uh, You learn to love him, but then, you know, when push comes to shove, he gets a little ISO heavy, um, plays a little bit too much like a a ball dominant superstar. And, um, you know, the weaknesses kind of bear themselves out and, and you, uh, when he comes out of contract or, or you, you're looking to change the team around, he's one, of the first guys that you kind of go yeah we can we can do without him so it'll be interesting to see where he lands but yeah boston overall um as you said very wing heavy uh the league you know we've noted on our podcast the league almost in um these playoffs the guard play has been heavy and the guards have have certainly let the team down for boston but they also haven't had a lot of options to go to as well when you look at that bench no, I think with that Kings pit they've got, which will probably fall between um, 12 and 14, I think they're going to, well, they should target an off-ball player because right now there's too many cooks. And I think you know, Bill Simmons kind of gets ridiculed for his tweets, but I think he's been on the money with the fact that this Boston team at times is is very unwatchable. And a couple of podcasts ago, me and uh, Jamie, one of our contributors, we spoke about now how roster building is about finding the balance between on and off ball players. I think that is what makes things smooth, and I think that's what ultimately makes offensive sets work. If you haven't got guys who can move off the ball, it's it's hard to design really creative and innovative um, offensive sets. Uh, we'll, yeah. m- we'll move on now to two very, very different teams. One team who use a lot of offensive sets. One's one who, if their seven seconds, if the first seven seconds don't generate some kind of pull-up three, they revert to a one-four or one-five ice. So we got the Rockets against the Warriors. Um, Warriors, uh, sorry, the Rockets pulled it back last night to two-two. I've got to say, after watching the first two games, I didn't think that would happen. Uh, James Harden looked a little bit more comfortable last night. Stopped with the with the flopping, just played his game, uh, relied more on getting to the rim rather than those floaters he's been using this year. What have you kind of made of this series? Because it's been one that's been quite weird in the general thing about who is the best player in the NBA debate. Yeah, I mean, you're certainly not alone in thinking that when it was 2-0, um, in favor of the Warriors, that the the series was going to likely be over. It's been pretty impressive to see Houston grind out these last two games and, and get it back to even. And I guess it's up to the Warriors to respond now. They they look a little defeated almost, even at two two, um, and, and like they weren't expecting this uh, little fight back from the Rockets. But they're just being gritty. Uh, they've been you know super impressive to watch. Guys are stepping up. You know Capella for all his faults, you know, in, I think, game three, had a pretty big game, uh, wasn't so good in game four. Um, but then, you know, Austin Rivers steps up and plays 33 minutes and they kind of go with Rivers, Gordon, Harden, Chris Paul and, and PJ Tucker for 
pretty big minutes down the stretch. So that's the really interesting thing. You kind of look at the Warriors bench. They're not getting really anything out of their bench now that they've moved Iggy into the starting lineup. So, um, you know, heavy minutes in both of these starting lineups. Um, But, you know, probably shout out Eric Gordon to be – Perfectly honest, you know, Harden can't do it all. Chris Paul has been subpar in most of their playoff games. Um, maybe subpar is a little bit harsh, but a little bit in the background when you kind of need that uh, Robin to become Batman. So Eric Gordon's really stepped into that role. He's the kind of second leading scorer on the team for the playoff um, playoffs overall. Uh, and he's shooting 41% from three in the playoffs overall in nine games. So he's been the the really interesting one and the one that's kind of giving him buckets when it's not James Harden. Yeah, I, I'll tell you I've been really impressed with, and this has been now for pretty much since you're on the rocks, PJ Tucker has been amazing. He's, um, I think one of the problems teams have when they go to a small center is that at times they don't necessarily make the right reads out of pick and roll. He is so good at making those little skip passes to the corner. He's um, one of, genuinely, he is one of the most, I'm talking about, I'm not talking about him as one of the best players in the league, but in terms of what he brings to that system and the flexibility he gives the Rockets with their lineups, there are not many players in that build who can play center and really, really handle it. Um, and he's been big because the the Rockets' plan against the Warriors has always been to chase Steph off the three-point line and live with those layups because they know mm-hmm. that Steph Curry lives and dies by being a shooter. He's um, Obviously, there's a bit of analytics in there as well. The three is worth more than the two, so you give up the two rather than the three with a shooter that good. But I think Tucker has been big in just kind of being that, that anchor in the middle. I mean, Clint Capella got a... He didn't really have a very successful free agency like he expected to. And I'm wondering if yeah. maybe a lot of teams foresaw this, where he was going to be sort of played off in the playoffs. Maybe I'm being harsh. and Maybe that maybe speaks a bit more to how good PJ Tucker is. Yeah, and I mean, you know, how good the Warriors are. Any little weakness, particularly in big men, and and you are played off the floor. And we've seen it in the playoffs. You know, Houston did it to some degree to Rudy Gobert as well. You know, as a Suns fan taking DeAndre Ayton, number one, who we might get into a little bit later, that's the biggest, uh, I guess, question mark right now. Is is he going to fall into that mold when hopefully the Suns are back in the playoffs at some point? And, and is he going to be a guy that gets played off the floor? We'll, we, you know, we'll see hopefully sooner rather than later as I said but yeah I'm glad you mentioned PJ Tucker one of my favorite players in the league Um, I think you know the general NBA audience is finally getting to see in the last couple of years what Phoenix fans saw on some you know okay and bad teams for quite a few years when he was with Phoenix but you know he's got the best plus minus on the whole team at the moment through the playoff series he's shooting 43 and a half percent from three on over five attempts a game as you said they're playing him as that small ball five down the stretch and he's making plays he's making those little skip pass reads um he's you know hitting buckets when they need him and he's just playing great defense getting those crucial rebounds and you know that's PJ Tucker he gets every ounce of talent out of himself and um, plays well above himself in the big moments. And and they're the kind of guys that you need down the stretch in the playoffs. And, and Houston just hit a real bargain there with, with PJ. Yeah. I see. I think when he got, um, when the Toronto Raptors moved to him, I think because he was hyped as this LeBron stopper. And I think the average fan who 
we'll just watch the playoffs. Um, I think they saw him not be a LeBron stopper because there's no such thing. And I'm wondering if that kind of lowered his, lowered the opinion of him across the league. It shouldn't have because no shame in um, not being a LeBron James stopper. But he has really, I think every year someone kind of, I don't want to say breaks out because anyone who's watched the NBA for a long time knows how good this guy is and knows how good he has been on some pretty average teams. But yeah, you, you see a guy every year who people go, people start to know. People go, wow, this guy's actually pretty, pretty good. Um, we, we've had a few of those over the years, and I'm wondering if Tucker has been that guy this year because he has... He pretty much embodies this Rockets team. They're, they are very different to what they were last year. And I'm going to pose this question to you that has been asked a lot. Do you think they are better than they were last year? Because I've seen that trotted around quite often. It's an interesting question. You know, they obviously had the likes of Trevor Ariza last year. I've seen a few conversations around, you know, what would Trevor Ariza do to this team if they were able to keep the rest of the pieces? Maybe, you know, if you're playing him instead of, I guess, someone like Daniel House Jr. on this team. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, Daryl Morey was you really put a lot of it on him early on in the year and said it was kind of his fault. They got a few of those early moves wrong. Um, you know, Mallow's obviously one of them. Um, Daniel House had his own contract situation going on, so he, he didn't come back permanently until the very end of the year. So, you know, probably a regular season team overall, it wasn't a better team. But, you know, this team now that's pushed Golden State to 2-2, who knows what's going to happen from here? But yeah, I think there's definitely an argument there. I think Harden, uh, I don't know what the simple box stat score, you know, comparison would show from this season to last season or, or this playoffs to last playoffs. But as you mentioned just earlier, he's he's playing smarter. He's developing. He's definitely matured since, you know, even just last playoffs. Chris Paul's probably a little bit down on the Chris Paul that they, or the, you know, healthy Chris Paul, they got at certain points in the playoffs last year. And, you know, as you said, PJ Tucker, and as I mentioned before, Eric Gordon are probably playing above themselves. So yeah, it's, it's pretty even to be honest and pretty hard predicting um, from day to day in the NBA at the moment, but I guess it's all going to come down to, to whether they can push golden state to seven games here. And I guess then they're, you know, maybe if they can win or or at least really push them in Game Seven, there's a real conversation that it was a, a better team than last season. Yeah, they've, they're certainly very different. I mean, last year they they have the same shot profile this year. They shot over fifty percent from of their shots from beyond the arc last year. They've done the same again this year, but there's a, there's different method about how they're doing it. Last year they did have a lot of ball screens off the ball moving throughout the shot clock. Now um, it's not really been the case. James Harden, I think, is for averaging four times more isolations than the second most guy, which I believe was John Wall before his injury. So, yeah, they're, they're certainly not... I think they're quite a controversial team. I mean, personally, um, this is a debate we have had in every group chat. I don't like watching them. I like watching ball movement, ball screens, player movement. I don't like watching... Well, if I say, and that's not me taking away from what they've done, but if I'm staying up till 2am, like I do most <laughs> nights to watch NBA... I want to watch a team that I enjoy watching. And we, we had Kurt Goldsbury on our last podcast, and he pretty much said the same thing. He said that a lot of people he speaks to in the industry, I mean, we're talking ESPN writers, they, they say the same thing, that the Rockets are actually maybe taking the NBA down a path that 
we might not like because it is that it is all about these the uh, the isolation basketball to generate buckets for stars. Post plays dead, and I'm wondering if the way the Rockets have played this year is going to change the way schemes are designed. Yeah, it's an interesting point. You have to respect it. Um, they've built a game plan around uh, their personnel and and their star, I suppose. Uh, I, I tend to agree with you. It's not the uh, prettiest basketball. It's not for the purists that love ball movement. I'm definitely leaning towards your side of, of someone that loves you know, a lot of misdirection, a lot of ball movement. Um, but you've got to respect it. And, you know, when everyone's trying to, you know, and has been trying to come up with a way to beat Golden State for the last four or five years uh, as they just get stronger and stronger. Uh, Houston have probably been the team that have, have been at least able to show that they can push them um, and maybe push them again to seven games in this series. So, um, yeah, it, it's a tough one. I agree with you. I, I'm often watching basketball at weird times and um, there's probably some other teams that I'd prefer to watch than Houston, but uh, nothing but respect for what they're doing right now and, and taking it up to the Warriors. Yeah, shout out to uh, former Phoenix Suns coach Mike D'Antoni, who did a great job this year. Um, I think he should have got some Coach of the Year votes for how he navigated that tough start and how he pretty much, re, with the help of Daryl Morris analytics, how he re-kind of shapes this team. And that seems like a good transition into probably the main reason uh, you wanted to come on the show to talk about your uh, Phoenix Suns, a team that I hope I hope you don't take offence to this, um, but I can't imagine many UK fans stayed up until ha- I believe your game started either half two or three in the morning our time. I cannot imagine yep. there were many people who um, who would have stayed up, but you've still you're still an interesting team that won that were followed a lot this year, certainly by X's and O's guys, because Igor Kokoskov ran, even though the offensive efficiency didn't necessarily match it, but that's more of a reflection of the roster rather than his his offensive scheme. His sets were some of the best. Mm-hmm. But as I know you were very sad about from following your um your Twitter feed, you were very upset <laughs> when he was fired after one year in the job, not having a point guard until the end of the year. And Tyler Johnson isn't really a point guard anyway. I covered him at the Heat. He's, I don't know what he is, but he's not the traditional point guard that you need if you want to run a sets-based offense. You replaced him with Monty Williams. I've got a strong opinion on on the change. What is First of all, what, what was your immediate reaction to, to the Eagles firing? Were you surprised? Uh, I was a little surprised, but I kind of expected it. Um, you know, there was a lot of Suns media and, and people that follow the Suns on Twitter who um, had essentially commented as the season ended that if we weren't going to get any sort of confirmation out of the team um, in terms of Eagles' future and the longer that that dragged on, there was always going to be a chance that he was fired. Um, and he said a few things himself in his exit interview that kind of lent for people to read the tea leaves a little bit that he was maybe not too confident himself. I think there was, well, we can see it now. There was a clear disconnect between him and the front office that essentially changed, I think, eight days before the season started and the GM that hired Eagle was fired himself. So, um, yeah, it was a season of, of discontent, really, and um, unstableness, which, as Suns fans, we 
we're, we're pretty used to these days. So yeah, I, I had my rant on my podcast. That's a great thing of having your own podcast is you can talk about what you want to. And um, I had a, a 20 minutes rant if there's any Suns fans or anyone that just wants to uh, hear an Australian go off on his team for about 20 minutes. And then I kind of left it in the past. And um, to be honest, the, the Suns moved on pretty quickly. And, and as you said, hired their new coach. So uh, there hasn't been a lot of time to to sit and wallow in uh, Igor's firing because, as you say, we, we now have a new head coach in Monty Williams and uh, someone else to talk about other than how Igor went last season. Yeah, I mean, you went on a 20-minute rant, and I think my podcast editors would kill me if you went on another one because they have to edit this tonight. But can you just, <laughs> for our listeners, can you just kind of summarise um, some of the some of the things you ranted about with regards to Igor and maybe, you know, basically, did you kind of defend Igor in this rant? I did. I defended Igor. I was probably one of the strongest people that... Um you know, approved of the hire of this kind of unknown guy to a lot of Suns fans when he was first hired. I, I was very familiar with him, did a lot of research on him before the Suns hired him because I, I got an inkling that it was going to be a hire that happened. And, you know, to, to lay it out in, in the timeline of things without going on a 20-minute rant, you, you mentioned one of the things uh, up the top there. I have already mentioned one. Uh, they're probably two of the more important ones. The, the GM was fired eight days before the season started, which is not ideal. Um, they also didn't give him a starting point guard for the entire season. So uh, an X's and O's rookie head coach who um, was always going to need the personnel to try and get everyone to buy in uh, early on, wasn't really given a roster to allow him to to coach to his strengths. So they were the big things. And then there's a whole bunch of other stuff in between, you know, the injuries, the roster makeup, um, you know, we, had trades for Tyler Johnson and Kelly Oubre. The Suns went on a, a bit of a stretch after the All-Star break and, and were kind of playing at a 500 pace for about 12 games there when they had the healthiest, um, talented roster, so to speak, um, after the All-Star break with the likes of Booker, Aiton, um, Johnson and Oubre, as I mentioned, and a few other pieces in between. Mikael Bridges and, and Rashawn Holmes were pretty pivotal in, in those moments as well. So, yeah, I think, you know, I thought that Igor showed uh, his talent as a head coach uh, in the very small patches that he actually had NBA talent to work with. And um, I think now we know there was a huge disconnect there and it, it may have been the right move for the franchise to move on. But I don't think the uh, 2018-19 season says really anything at all about Eagles head coaching ability in the NBA. And hopefully he gets another chance because he was really set up to fail. And that was the, uh, the crux of my rant, Joe was that, um, you know, they, they set him up at every turn to fail and uh, it was no surprise by the end what happened because of uh, what the front office and the organisation gave him as a rookie head coach in the NBA. Yeah, I think you're absolutely spot on. I mean, I think a guy who runs all those creative sets, it needs a point guard. Tyus Jones was the one who's always lit. That's not happening now because he is our starting point guard for the near future. But... They, you need a point guard like that who just puts the ball in the right spots, can call sets like Tyus does for us. Um, you you got Tyler Johnson at the end. He's um, I I kind of liked him a little bit in Miami more for more for he was very valuable for where they got him. Um, you know he wasn't mm -hmm. it wasn't a high pick or anything like that. 
I, I'm not sure he's a point guard, really. I think he's a downhill guard. I see it as a difference. He's not the pure point guard in the sense that he's going to call out sets. He doesn't necessarily make the smart plays all the time. He, he's very much... He's aggressive, and that that's always good. It collapses the defense. Fitted Miami's driving kit philosophy, but I'm not sure um, he was ever the answer. Um, I think... In terms of the Monty Williams hiring, I'll give you my take on it before I ask for yours. I, I've i never been a huge fan of him. He seems like a very nice guy. He's got good relationships with players throughout the league. I believe he's friends with a lot of big players, you know, your LeBron Jameses, people like that. But mm-hmm. And Anthony Davis, I believe he's friends with. But I was never a fan of what he did in New Orleans. They were a team I covered for a little bit. I thought his offensive sets were very... If you compare them to Eagles, and I know a lot could have changed in those five years, but if if you're comparing them to Eagles, for me, they're not not close. They've got... um, His one real success was making the AC with the Pelicans, and I, I know I shouldn't take that away from him. They got there by default because the Thunder had a lot of injuries at the end of the season, and I believe they blew it in their last five games. I just, I am not sold on him being this amazing coaching candidate that the league seems to think he is. He's a good assistant. Um, Brett Brown has said as much. I'm just not sold that this is the guy who's gonna take who's gonna take this Suns team to the next level. Yeah, I. I... I tend to agree with you. He's going to be the direct opposite of Igor, um, and a lot of fans are probably going to be happy about that because there were a lot of fans that didn't like uh, Igor Koskov as as an overall head coach. I think the thing to um, note here for any non-Suns fans listening or or any Suns fans even, I guess it's just my opinion, but um, James Jones has already come out and said a couple of times in a radio interview, he was on the jump yesterday, I believe, um, you know, that... The Suns are essentially hitting the reset button here and trying to start a culture again. And they've pegged Monty as the kind of guy that they can do that with. So, you know, I would say they've they've taken a different approach with head coach here and gone away from a guy like Eagle, who's uh, most of his strengths are going to be on the court. And they've gone a guy with a guy like Monty, who, as you said, has a great reputation around the league. Um, Kevin Durant, I believe, called him the best man he, he knows. Uh, as you said, he's got great relationships with many high-profile players. I don't think that's going to mean that the Suns are going to you know attract high profile players straight away to to this team and this organization but they're really challenging him with turning the franchise's reputation around and you know i've um made the comparison at this stage until we at least see whether he's morphed into uh, a more modern coach that he's essentially going to be the son's mark jackson uh, with the Warriors, and and he's going to be the the guy that uh, hopefully gets a lot of these young guys playing the right way, uh, gets in their face a little bit, which is not a strength of Eagles, um, holds them accountable, and and tries to turn the team around, as I said, and then maybe they flip in in year three or four. He does have a five year contract, so it'll be interesting to see whether he sees that out because not many coaches do with the Suns; um, they generally get paid to leave. Um, but you know, I think at some point if he hasn't changed as a X's and O's coach um, since those Pelicans teams, maybe someone else will come in like Steve Kerr did down the road with the Suns. But for now, he looks like a decent fit at least to change the fortunes of the franchise, which was going along at a pretty crappy pace for for quite a while there, Joe. It it was a rough year. I mean, I expected you to be 
I remember we did the over-unders, and I think we both had them. The the over-under was like 28 or 29. I think we both had them over. Um, yeah. It, it really bottomed out at times, but there was there were positives. Um, you look to have had a pretty good draft. Mikael Bridges looks very, very good. His net rating stats, I mean, you might tell me they were misleading. I don't know, because obviously you watched the team more than I did, but I was impressed with what I saw from him. He... Um, he looks like the kind of player that you need on a team. We spoke earlier about the Boston Celtics not having many off-ball threats. I think they could do with a with a player in that mould. But DeAndre Ayton, I'm not going to talk about Luka Doncic or Jaron Jackson, but just Ayton the player. Forget the that you took him at one. What mm-hmm. what was he was he good in his rookie season? I, I was quite impressed with Ayton to be honest. Um, you know, I had him at, at kind of number two or one B as I put it towards the end there before the draft, um, just behind Luka Dontich. I definitely wanted the Suns to take Luka, particularly with the Igor connection, which is another thing that they kind of failed him on there. But, you know, Aiton overall um, over the 70 or so games that he played, I thought I was really impressed. Um, he's quite raw. I think one thing that the Suns local media um, did a disservice to DeAndre with is is kind of pretending like he was just going to come in and dominate from the outset. Um, there's a lot of things that uh, took him quite a while and are still going to take him quite a while to grasp. He's, you know, not great at putting the ball on the floor. Um, his defensive instincts aren't great. But, you know, to push to the positive side, his touch is phenomenal for a guy uh, at 20 years of age in his rookie season in the NBA. I was floored at at times. Um, He is huge out there on the court. And then I guess harking back to what we were talking about before, I've got real hopes that in meaningful playoff games in the future, he is going to be able to stay out on the court, A, because his offensive game is ridiculous and they're going to be able to use him in a way that he's much more effective than a Clint Capella or, or a Rudy Gobert. And he's, I think, going to be able to stay out there uh, in the modern NBA because he can really move his feet on the perimeter. His, his kind of weaknesses are more uh, weak side shot blocking, um, and you know, keeping up with sets, but in terms of raw tools and instincts, it, it's all there. And um, pretty, pretty impressive season from DeAndre, and a historical one, as many people have noted, with kind of you know averaging a double double at, at a pretty crazy efficiency. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I um, I follow a lot of film guys. I think I believe I follow Suns Film Room, and you could see just in the clips they posted that his defense did kind of improve at times as the year went on. Um, the plays, yeah, I the plays I watched in the season, I thought, oh my god, this is this is not good. But towards the end of the season, you saw his instincts get a little bit better. He was being a bit of a deterrent at times, which I think is very big. If you can force a lot of these elite guards and wings to just take that extra second to think, that that's enough to disrupt a lot of offensive sets. Just that extra second, it gives other that's a second other other guys get time to recover. I think he obviously, unfortunately, he's going to get sort of this held over his head for a long time because of who was selected after him. Um, and I'm wondering if if maybe that's going to kind of be a big referendum on on the end of the Ryan McDonough era. That might be his seen as his worst mistake. Aiton could turn out to be a very good player. The other guy you got was Michael Bridges. Um, what did you kind of make of his rookie year? 
Yeah, I mean, just to touch on the end there with DeAndre, I think Igor did a great job of simplifying things towards the end of the season. We even saw him go on to Giannis and LeBron late in games or, or for whole games, really, but late in the season. And um, that's where we really saw a simplified role pay dividends for DeAndre. And yeah, as you said, the the uh, number one pick stuff is always going to hold over him, but a, a great thing just uh, to end on DeAndre, I suppose, is uh, he doesn't seem to have the mentality where that's going to really bother him like we've seen with other top picks in the, par- in the past. He's kind of his own man, so I don't have too many concerns there. But, yeah, to, to your question about Mikhail, loved his season. Um, you know, one reason why I was able to, you know, watch all 82 games and, and sometimes uh, a second time to cut film and things like that is, you know, even on a 19-win team, this is the lack of Mikhail. He was really fun to watch. Um, the, the jump shot was frustrating. He only shot 33% from three in the end, uh, which was supposed to be one of his strengths. He kind of tinkered with it all season, um, broke it down a little bit. It was very robotic at times, particularly when, when he was left wide open. So that's going to be something to watch going into his sophomore season. But the defense, um, the IQ, you can really see it out there with Mikhail. And um, yeah, as you mentioned at the top there, I, I'm really high on him. I think he's virtually untouchable on this team because I think he just is the perfect piece to a DeAndre Ayton, Devin Booker, led offense uh him out on the wing hitting shots and and playing defense and making the right play is kind of the perfect thing for this Suns team yeah I liked him I think he was my number three or four player it was number four I believe behind Doncic Jackson and Young I believe I had Jackson at one so I liked what he brought he scored a play type stats for college uh, a kind of People don't like using them because they often say more about the scheme and surround talent. But I think when you perform Mm -hmm. that well in that many play types, that that does matter. Um, It doesn't necessarily matter who you're surrounded by. If you're scoring on every possible play type, that that's good. There have been occasions, I remember Sidarius Formwell, for example, scored a lot and he's not really turned out to much. But for a first-round talent, that was impressive. When we last podcasted, I gave you a take of mine that I said the three players you took in last year's draft would all be starting within two years. We've spoken about Aiton and Bridges. Um, before we get on to Devin Booker, because I want to end on him because he's probably your uh, most positive piece moving forward. But Ilya Koba yeah. played 53 games, um, 16 starts. The st- I've got to say the stats don't look great. He was high on my board as well. I thought he would ride that pull-up jumper to be one of the next very good point guards. What did you kind of see from him in your first year? Because I think he- my personal take is from the other I don't think he was helped by the fact that you didn't have a point guard for a lot of the season. I think there was too much pressure on a guy coming from a, a very small French team to the NBA. Yeah, the the ironic thing about not having a point guard is then they also had two rookie point guards in in Ali and DeAnthony Melton. Um so they kind of battled it out all season and Melton uh seemed to have the trust of Igor over Ali um because he was a little sturdier out there, a little more willing to give the ball up and play off ball and probably had the most NBA ready skill on defense out of the two prospects. So um Igor tended to lean towards putting DeAnthony out there uh over Ali. But you know, Ali showed flashes. He had a couple of big games um when they kind of got him out there for for big minutes and he seemed like a player that was 
um, really bereft of confidence and uh, one that needed to get out there for extended minutes. And I think we saw that in the fact that all of his good games in a Suns uniform this year was when he was given an opportunity to either start or go out there and play you know, extended minutes that he knew were coming before the game even started. So I think it's a confidence thing for Ali. Um, I think all the tools are there. As you said, he's he's kind of got that sweet jump shot. He, he struggled to finish around the rim. Um, and I think Eagle was overall just frustrated by him, which is why he didn't get a lot of opportunity on this Suns team. And, um, you know, the, the impressive thing about Aiton and Bridges is, you know, there wasn't, as you noted, a lot of veterans around these guys to protect them. They were kind of thrown into the fire. So Ali was probably one that uh, got burnt a little bit by that, whereas the other rookies kind of came out the other side with a little bit of progress. But, um, yeah, not over fairly, but it's just going to be interesting with this team, a new GM set up, a new front office set up. Um, and if you look down, the roster is still very young and wants to improve very quickly. So there's going to be some decisions made on some of these young guys. And, uh, you know, they might get thrown into trades um, if the Suns look to try and bring in some more veterans. So it will be interesting to see whether Ali and DeAnthony uh, both make the team next year or, or on the roster. Well, you said they might not be on the roster. I, I, I could see them go out in trades. Uh, they're not going to oh, right. cut them, obviously. Very valuable contracts at the moment. Uh, Ali's more so valuable than DeAnthony Melton's because um, he's got the full four-year rookie scale, whereas Melton they could only sign for two. But yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if you know Ali chosen just outside the first round is a, is a piece that gets thrown into a bigger trade, Joe. I would very much love to Minnesota to be a part of that trade and get him in because I still, <laughs> again, obviously you've seen a lot more of him than me, but I think, I think in the right situation we could really unlock that that pull up jumper that made him. I think I had him twelve or thirteen on my board, which was higher than most people, probably higher than this family yeah. had him. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, we will. Um, I, I spoke about Devin Booker. I, I've some listeners probably thinking, Joe, how have you not brought Devin Booker? I want to finish on him because it was a rough season for the Suns. Um, he was he was the bright spot. He is the most over unfairly criticized guy in the NBA right now. People blaming him for the Suns uh, being at the bottom. David, what is it like to watch? Is Devin Booker what keeps Suns fans going? Oh, a hundred percent. I've seen a lot of Suns fans uh, this year through all the turmoil kind of say that they're attached to the Suns as long as Booker's still on the team. But, you know, they may look to give up their Suns membership uh, if and when Devin um, demands a trade. And the funny thing is with with all the drama around the Suns and uh, recent superstars that we've seen demand trades and, and fans turn on them, I don't think there's many Suns fans at all that would turn on Devin Booker if, you know, in one or two years' time he decided that enough was enough and he wanted to be traded to a, a decent playoff team if the Suns weren't there yet because he's just had a hell of a first four years in the NBA, no continuity, uh, didn't help this year with a lot of injuries um, on himself, which, you know, a lot of them were soft tissue, so not exactly his fault uh, in preparation or anything like that, I wouldn't have thought. But um, he had a hand surgery before the season started was another reason why I thought it was very harsh on Igor because he had to go into his training camp and preseason trying to teach the offense without his number one star. 
uh, playable or, or, you know, being able to train or, or go to camp. So that was pretty rough on Igor before the season had even started. But when Devin Booker was healthy, we saw it in the first couple of games before he did his first hamstring. Um, and then towards the end of the year when the season was over and he had some of those crazy games, um, when he was healthy, that's the best I've seen him. He took another leap this year. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he takes another leap next year and maybe that three-point shot comes back a little bit because he was pretty down at 32, 33% this year, which was a little bit disappointing. But his efficiency inside the arc, uh, his playmaking that he showed, uh, increased IQ, his maturity on a, a pretty you know, struggling team. Um, yeah, I don't have much negative to say about Devin Booker other than the fact that, you know, I just hope that he can have a decent team around him at some point soon because, yeah, I agree with you. A lot of the criticism to him is just very much uncalled for and really he's just a lightning rod because he's pretty much been the only good player on this team for a few seasons now. Yeah, I, I think people are unrealistic about how they believe a Stark and elevated team. I don't think there's a player I'd put on this team. I'm talking even the best players in the league. There's not a player I'd put with this roster and think that they're going to elevate it to like a playoff seed. I think that was that 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 for me for, for the Booker haters. That is the only thing that will ever validate that will ever kind of make them change their take if he somehow leads this jumbled roster to a playoff spot. Um, you've You've got a new general manager there, Ryan McDonough, after, in my opinion, years of poor draft selections. Just a generally quite a weird reign. I didn't understand the direction. Sometimes he was trying to go for these win-now moves, the LaMarcus Aldridge move. Other times he was he was not doing that. I didn't understand it. But you've now got James Jones. He's made... I mean, from the outside, I see. It. I think he's made a couple of nice moves so far. I like De- I like DeAnthony Melton. I think Tyler Johnson was a, again, I think he's a decent pickup. I think he's a player that can help you. Do you, do Suns fans kind of trust in James Jones at the moment, or is it more that you feel you don't really have a choice? It's probably more that we don't. We feel like we don't have a choice right now. He he is the man that's been thrust into the spotlight as the new um, GM right now. I think Suns fans are hoping that he's the man and that he has uh, Robert Sarver's trust to at least make the decisions and not have the owner meddle too much. Because for any Ryan McDonough apologists out there, I'm sure there are a few. I think they would say that a lot of the uh, bad decisions in in Ryan McDonough's tenure were because of of meddling from ownership and uh, differing opinions from season to season on whether they wanted to be a contender or or a tanking team. So, yeah, I think in hindsight, as you say, McDonough's tenure was was pretty tumultuous, littered with mostly bad draft picks other than probably Devin Booker and to a lesser degree, TJ Warren. Um, and, you know, it was time for him to go. If anything, uh, he probably should have gone two seasons ago when they extended him and brought James Jones in as his assistant. Uh, I said on my podcast last week, they they really just wasted a season with the Igor hire um, as high as I was on Igor and, and will continue to be as a coach. Just wasn't the direction of the team. They had a, late, a lame duck GM who then took over one of the most important off-seasons with the number one pick, spent all his cap space on Trevor Ariza, and then they fired him because he couldn't get a point guard. So it was just a disaster. Um, and, and now Jones is being given the chance to really just um, tear everything down. We've seen our training staff of the last 15 years 
um, go to the Pelicans, our head trainer anyway, um, and new training staff are coming in. Uh, they've hired Jeff Bauer as um, Jones's right-hand man, uh, kept Trevor Buckstein along with Jones, who's kind of known as the, the cat ex- expert and, and the one that comes up with the, the weird CBA stuff that teams do every now and then. Um, so it's it's kind of been turned over to Jones, and he's pretty impressive. You know, I said today he talks the talk um, in interviews and – now it's just time to see if he can kind of follow it through. And uh, the first thing now that they've got a coach is, as we've harped on quite a bit already in this podcast, is go out and get a point guard. Because, you know, Tyler Johnson was a free hit. They got him for Ryan Anderson, who was uh, woeful on the Suns. So uh, as far as grading that deal goes, as, as you said, Tyler's not a pure point, but they won that trade. Um, and he he got Kelly Oubre in, in weird circumstances as well, but you'd have to say that he won that too. So everything until now is is being positive around James Jones, um, but this offseason is going to be crucial for, for him and my team. Yeah, it's certainly going to be interesting to watch how Williams does with this team. I kind of liked your comp about the Mark Jackson comp. I'm wondering if, in hindsight, maybe if you'd flipped the Williams and Eagle hirings, um, things might have been better off because I think a lot of those offensive sets that Igor ran, um, they are important. But I'm wondering if if maybe there there wasn't much team unity, if that makes any sense at all. I think sometimes yep, you've got to, I think sometimes you've got to unite a team and a squad before you can really install a system because otherwise it doesn't it doesn't necessarily feel right for the players. I know that when that the athletic survey came out that. I think that other than Tom Thibodeau, the, the coach people least wanted to play for was Igor. I'm wondering if his kind of more laid-back European manner came into that. But I'm also wondering if that maybe he didn't necessarily do enough to to be a man-manager, which is part of it. It's not just all about schemes and S's and O's. You've got to be able to, to manage people as well. I think that is going to be the interesting thing to watch with Monty Williams. Yeah, that's the change that they've made for sure. Um, you know, I tend to give Igor the excuse of really the the franchise didn't support him and understand his strengths as a coach and give him the things to help bring the team together and allow him to do his job. You know, he was kind of putting out fires from the get-go, as I said, with uh, Ryan McDonough's firing, Devin Booker's injury before the season ever start, even started. So for a rookie head coach, which... You know, he's going to come in and have flaws and need to learn things on the run a little bit. You know, you don't know everything. Even a guy with 20 years experience in the NBA like him, um, there's still nothing like running a team yourself or being the head coach. So the organization just failed him as far as I'm concerned. He, he definitely had his flaws, but they just didn't understand the coach that they were hiring and uh, they didn't uh, put the right pieces around him to, to help him do his job. So yeah, as you said, they've flipped it. I like the analogy of, you know, maybe these two hires should have flipped and, and Eagle should have been the coach that comes in in four or five years time to take them to another level. So um, that probably won't happen. He's already been to the Suns twice now, so I can't see him coming back third time, but um, you know, Monty's an interesting one. He's, um, been through a lot both personally and in the NBA since those New Orleans days. So it'll be interesting. I, I can't wait to start to see things come out of the Suns in the off season um, to see if he has changed at all as a coach from those Pelicans teams. Yeah, coaches can can most definitely uh, adapt and 
I mean, Quinn Snyder did it. He was a failed college coach, and now he's one of the best coaches in the NBA. So it definitely can happen. Um, thank you for coming on, David. It's always good to get a perspective from from teams that, you know, it's hard to cover all 30 teams. It's good to get experts from a certain team on. No, I appreciate you having me on, Joe. Anytime, I'm happy to jump on. Um, even before the season, again, it's always fun to talk this, about the Suns, even though uh, they're not the most entertaining team to talk about from an on-court standpoint. They are certainly very entertaining off the court and, and keep my attention a lot of the time. So, yeah, appreciate you having me on and, and for anyone who has taken the time to listen to this. Yeah, and I will double down that. Thank you guys for listening, and I will see you for our 300th show next time. Thank you. Thank you.